Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we're heading to London, England with Amber to explore her world of neuroscience, art, and innovation. Hi, Amber. Hi. How are you doing today? Yeah, it's been great. Third third meeting in today. (laughs) So in the thick of it. Yeah. Well, we catch you at a point where you're kind of warmed up for our listeners, which is great. And before we get into our, what I like to call weird and wonderful questions, I'm wondering if you can tell us exactly where you are and what it's like in London today, sort of get us situated in your world. Yeah. So I'm exactly in London. I am at my house today. So working from home, it's actually quite a sunny day out in London today, which is a rarity. It's sunny enough that I can open the windows. It's been quite cold recently, but today it's about 60 degrees Fahrenheit slash 11 degrees Celsius, whichever you operate in. So yeah, it's it's quite a nice day today. Yeah, it's it's been a good morning so far. Very productive, I'd say. Awesome. That's always a good feeling. And so before we <laughs> delve into, oh my gosh, there's so many cool things to cover today. I always like to ask these questions that don't really have anything to do with anything, but they are always entertaining. (laughs) First question, I hope you're ready for this. If you could choose a superpower, what would it be? A superpower? Mm, That is a good question. I feel like these are like on the the line of of dating questions, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's the vibe. (laughs) I'm trying to think through like, oh, should I say this one and not say this one? Because it means this one secretly. I would, I would probably like invisibility Mm. just because they're so multifaceted and things that you could accomplish with that and understand or just sort of be there or not be there in moments. (laughs) Maybe that's the one of the standard superhero powers that we know of. Of course, there's like, if we want to go the social route, there's superpowers of ending hunger and things like that. I do at the snap of your finger, I think most people would do. There's that angle of superhero as well. I love both of those answers. So... But yeah, superpower is, you know, open to interpretation. But yes, if we're going sort of more traditional with our route, (laughs) I think invisibility is a great one. If we're going, yeah, as you said, that sort of like bigger picture. And if we could snap our fingers and solve global problems, that would be (laughs) right. Yeah. Let's just completely reset what's going on here. That'd be great. Okay. Second question. What's your favorite number? My favorite number is 10. I think I've always liked number 10. When I was at, so I started playing basketball, for example, when I was 10. And then I took on the number 10, which was then symbolic. Mm. And then it's sort of like a number of completion and, you know, new beginnings sort of thing. I like the number 10. Love that. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? I, you know, so I'm an ethnic minority. <laughs> <laughs> The answer, uh, probably wouldn't go that far back. (laughs) (laughs) So so, 
I would say around this area, um, there are people that I would have wanted to meet, though. Like, so I would have wanted to mm. meet, like, my Angelou, for example. Right. Um, there are some sort of people who kind of made impact in history and time. And so if I were mm. to go back, it would be sort of holistically to have conversation rather than to live in those periods. <laughs> Sorry. No, not at all. I think that's that's the perfect answer. And I mean, in many ways, I kind of feel for you, maybe it would be more of you would want to go into the future because of the yeah. work that you do. <laughs> yeah, that would be the way. There's been so much great work that's been done, I think, over the over time. And you always think it would be cool to have witnessed it, but then probably not when you know you think of like how much absolute turmoil people went through to mm-hmm. to get us to where we are now. So I think if I went back, it would be just like very temporarily <laughs> to yeah. have conversations with people. Yeah, absolutely. Or we just go down the line. I would just would really like to see a dinosaur. I mean, yeah, before we came, yeah, somewhere before like social problems became a thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would have been cool. Or to, to even know the exact components of how the universe was made other than the sort of like Big Bang Theory. For sure. Love the direction all of that went. <laughs> name a word that starts with the letter q quilt oh lovely i really love patchwork quilts (laughs) it's like my Mm -hmm. favorite cozy at home thing yeah for sure my aunt used to make them and they were they're they're just the best thing ever my grandmother she used to make them yeah it's all like holy and everything but it's wonderful and i still Mm -hmm. curl up under it actually on my couch so (laughs) absolutely that's the best kind of gift isn't it it is yeah would you rather lose all your hair or gain 50% more hair? I don't mind probably either way. Maybe I would gain 50% more hair. It's already like fairly unruly and just we always describe it as like baby hair because it just kind of like does whatever <laughs> it wants to do. At any yep. given moment in time, it can be like curly straight in between somewhere, <laughs> like how you would imagine a little kid's hair. Probably I would go with 50% more hair just because I already know how to manage it. And I think it will fall out at some point anyway, um, <laughs> which will render me bald. <laughs> so you get the best of both. But I don't mind, to be honest. I'm not I'm not like deeply attached to my hair in any particular way. So I think that's a healthy way to be. Yeah. If you were an animal, what would you be? Well, I don't know the specifics of like how long they live or anything. <laughs> but the animal <laughs> that seems to have like the most chill life is like a sloth seem to be just enjoying life all the time <laughs> but right? i don't know if they live long no stress they seem to be just the most chilled like enjoying life animal there is what's that what there's another animal that's quite scrappy it like kills snakes or something or um honey badger honey badger yeah honey badger is like the most ruthless animal and you wouldn't think so but it's sort of that it can survive like snake bites it so in, in at Entrepreneur First, which is this accelerator program that I went into, they used to say, um, whenever you come up with an idea or whatever, drive it into the stake, which means like do the thing that would kill it first to, mm-hmm. in order to understand if you have a good idea. On the backside of that, we had this sort of narrative like honey badger. Yeah, but if you did something that was quite, that had to be done, that was quite ruthless or that was, you know, like you had to fire somebody or whatever, you just say Mm. honey badger because it's sort of like you did it for the greater good of the company or what, you know, whatever. Yeah, necessity. Yeah. So maybe a honey badger because honey badgers get things done. Resilient. Really. Yeah, they're Mm -hmm. resilient. They bounce back for sure. 
<laughs> like it's just living life. No. <laughs> Sloth honey and badger honey badger don't care. Yeah, honey badger don't care. YouTube it. Okay, so those are our weird and wonderful questions. And as always, they <laughs> never disappoint. They're like the best. <laughs> so I always like to start the episodes with a bit of a an origin story. So we're going to get you to think back to your childhood and how did life begin? What's it been like being you? We learned that you played basketball when you were 10. We know that now, but you could just kind of take us back with you and tell us about how your life began. I always try and like keep it a little bit high level. I think everyone has gotten their own stories that shape their lives and light bulb moments and things. Mine are very personal and some are tragic, so I, I won't like mm. bring everybody to tears. <laughs> so um, at a high level, I started off from, from humble beginnings. My mother was very much for the most part a, a single parent mother, and she put me and my brothers into all of the different sports and activities that we could possibly be in. From her perspective, I think it was to kind of like keep us out of trouble because she was working so much. And there was always, you know, if we were in these sort of sports, there's always a supervised, uh, like we were always supervised with teams, with the group of people, with adults. And so she kept us disciplined in a very unique way that we were able to explore a quite a wide variety of things that we could be interested in. And so I would say that's probably my earliest start is just playing a bunch of sports, getting involved in a bunch of different things. And she always was careful to, she did, she did want me to be a girly girl and I never was because I didn't have any sisters. <laughs> I only had <laughs> brothers, but she, the, she, you know, she accepted that in the sense that she provided me with toys that were educational. She was big on education in itself. I remember early stage, one of my first, one of my favorite toys was this, it wasn't a laptop because I don't even think computers were out at that point, but it was laptop-like, mm. but it was a sort of a Fisher-Price toy that resembled a laptop, like it folded open and folded closed, but the, the buttons and everything were very, you know, like childlike, uh, but it was an electronic sort of device in that, in that sense. And I, th I think I remember that being one of my favorite toys when I was younger, but mm -hmm. she always get us these like science kits and things like that so we can sort of pretend to be scientists and explore the earth and worms and <laughs> this and that so mm -hmm. I, I remember being, I was quite like tomboyish in, in a way when I was younger I always felt like I could do what the boys were doing eventually you know as we grew we fell into whatever sports and things that we kind of were really good at and loved but we, I mean, literally, I remember being, uh, she, she, tried, she she did try and make me a girly girl. She really did. She, I was in ballet. I was in like cheerleading. <laughs> I've got these funny pictures when I was younger of just like me with the straight face holding a pom-pom up. <laughs> like, like, like I couldn't be asked to do this. But I did end up, so <laughs> I, I end up growing up like really loving the arts my father actually was quite a talented artist. He did it on the side. It wasn't like his main job, but I remember actually watching him sculpt and things like that. And so I've always had that as a part of me. I would say a good portion of my family is kind of half and half, half on the sort of science, more science side as doctors or nurses or charismatics, things like that. 
a good portion of law as well. And then the other side is artistic. Uh, I've got a cousin, for example, who owns a gallery and things like that. So it, there's a good mix in, in the family. But I think, you know, it set the tone for that type of openness and exploration of what makes you happy, what you're good at, what you can become skilled at, and all of that then gives you a certain level of discipline. And also, I think I learned subconsciously things from her about, you know, just working and not, you know, she didn't really ask anybody for anything. She just made it happen. And so, you know, when we moved out to the to suburbs, you know, she had largely done all of that on her own. And I think there's something I learned about grit and effort and discipline just by kind of by watching my mom. Mm-hmm. I think that's the earliest, earliest kind of phase of life. All aspects of that kind of carried on through middle school, high school. I was always involved in a, a whole bunch of things um, and all shaped around my interest. I, I maintained a level of art. I would be in art competitions and things and I enjoyed science. And, you know, like in high school, chemistry was one of my favorite classes. And then I went to undergrad in the U.S., which is still quite an exploratory experience. So, and I went to liberal arts college. It was an all residential campus. And in the States, you are able to change your major as many times as you want to. I think originally I went in thinking that I was going to do this like cross-disciplinary thing and do like art therapy or something. (laughs) One of the earlier conversations that may have shaped some of the decisions in my life was with one of my uncles. He said to make sure that whatever I chose to do, that I could measure it. I don't even think I was in high school when we had that conversation, but it stands out to me even to this day because it was so like before it's time in a way. After the art therapy thing, I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a dentist. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, no, I don't know about that. Maybe I'll do this. And so I, I kind of zigzagged in, in, in just kind of exploring things that were health adjacent. And then I took my first neuroscience class, and that is what stuck with me. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And I loved it so much because it combined so many things. So there was biology in there and there was psychology in there and there was chemistry in there. And there was just so much that factored into our neurological makeup, so to speak. And you, I, I wouldn't have to peg myself one way or the other. And, and what I mean by mm-hmm. that is like, if you have a pegboard and then you stick the peg in the pegboard and that's your mm-hmm. bit, you know, always wanted to be like that sort of like Renaissance woman type of thing where I can just pick up and do something because like, you know, I have that talent or that skill set. Liberal arts kind of gave me that because you had to dabble in all of the different things in order to get that degree. And so I finished with psychology, neuroscience, and chemistry minor. The the chemistry minor though came after, I was actually originally a studio art minor. I had to choose my last class. And if I chose one class in the art side, then I would be, then I would have the studio art. Or if I chose one class on the chemistry side, then I would have the chemistry. And I did for chemistry because I knew that I would always have my art. And if mm-hmm. I didn't take the chemistry class, then all of that work that I had done would kind of disappear. I, I dabbled, I mean, I dabbled though, so I, I went to school. I had an academic scholarship, but then I, I did play basketball and volleyball, actually, to start there. Then I dropped to just basketball, and then I uh, got into neuroscience. I focused in on neuroscience, and I dropped sports altogether. It gave me the flexibility to do that. And then after I dropped sports, I really wanted to be active. And then I, I started to do contemporary dance, which is a funny mm-hmm. story. Like, that's, that's a journey in, in and of itself. 
it was one of those things actually let me just tell a story because it's quite funny mm-hmm. i had a, a i was a an ra in europe it's called a head resident in the states it's resident assistant or a head ra where you have a room in one of the dormitories and you kind of look after everybody right. in that dormitory and so i had a resident who was studying dance and she she let me know that they had this trial <laughs> was it the the uh, tryouts open and so i was thinking oh do you know what it'd be so cool to like dance and like how hard could it be <laughs> and so i went down went to this this tryout like having never taken a, a formal dance class in my life apart from like when <laughs> i was a child to trying out and what i didn't know is that it was not just contemporary so there's there are three pieces that they were auditioning for one was a flamenco piece, one was a ballet piece, and one was a contemporary dance piece. And they wanted you to dance all styles. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So if you can imagine me with no training out there about two beats behind everybody <laughs> trying to. I love it. Ever been to an audition or something, or even just like a class that is dance, they teach you so fast. It's far beyond like a muscle memory type of thing. After that, I was like, I embarrassed myself so badly that I then got, got into contemporary dance classes <laughs> and awesome. tried out again. And so when I auditioned the second time I got in, I've performed <laughs> in two contemporary dance pieces in my lifetime. But it's something that I ended up falling falling in love with. And so a, a huge part of sort of the art side of me beyond painting, because I still paint uh, acrylic on canvas, like huge canvases is dance. So my favorite activities to do like as a hobby is just, you know, for fun is to go to dance performances uh, in London mm-hmm. or theater and experience the arts in that way. So I absolutely love that. So then fast forward from undergrad, I moved to London and did my master's in clinical neuroscience and then went on to do my PhD in biomedical neuroscience. And that was, I think, equally. So usually at at the point in the States where you funnel in on what you want to do is that grad school point in the sense of after you've chosen your major, you get your degree and then you focus in on whatever track that area is. When I moved to to London, actually, there was still this exploratory aspect of it because they do education fundamentally differently. It wasn't about strict as classes and assignments, even though we did have that. You had to kind of learn on your own. The professor would not tell you what what they're going to quiz you on or or what they're going to test you on. Chapter one to chapter ten is going to be on there, and mm-hmm. you were it's not like that in the states. In the states, like you kind of have a good idea of like the topics and the trajectory that the test is going to go down. Whereas this was more exploratory in that sense, and so I have managed just based on where I've done my education and when sort of how it all kind of played out to stay in this constant exploratory space, either on a particular topic or on a variety of topics where I had a good amount of freedom to learn in various different ways that suited me. And even after I did my PhD, PhD was fully kind of exploratory as well. You know, nobody was standing over you telling you what to do or anything like that. The structure was fundamentally different. You did, you had to accomplish and achieve what you did. So I had an upgrade evaluation, which is, are you on track, especially enough to get your PhD? And then you have the Viva at the end. And what you do in between is fundamentally up to you. And you have a bit of guidance uh, along the way, if you're lucky, and just get on with it. And so that's kind of also how I was able to have a nonprofit at the same time as doing my PhD. During the postdoc, again, another exploratory phase where there was no one telling me that I had to do this or that. It was full on creating Mm -hmm. what I wanted my 
reality to be. And I think that that is a theme pretty much throughout my upbringing is from, from my mom when I was a child right up to where I am now is I never had a restriction on exploring who I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. I could go into any room and talk about any subject because of that. Wow. Just to hear you talk about all of that. And it's such a huge period of time, but it's really nice when we can sit back and reflect, okay, what is the actual thread that connects all of these things? And what can I actually take forward with me into whatever I end up doing? Even the recreational things. So the painting, for example, or going to theater and things that were very much, I was active in college and things. It's not necessarily a part of my work life, but it is definitely a part of how I balance myself and probably how I learned to balance myself as well. And that was like sort of self-teaching. So I can I can completely calm my 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 nerves or myself down if I paint, or I know if I am feeling a series of of other emotions, I can go into the theater and and mm-hmm. like I know how to balance my own world so to speak those things over time are ways that i've just learned to balance who i am i think that's a huge part of maturing developing i call tools in the toolbox of okay i know how to actually regulate myself i know how to calm my nervous system when i'm feeling overwhelmed i know the things that bring me flow and joy and the things that maybe i'm going to find a little bit more resistance in and yeah it's really it's really cool to like listen back to your story and sort of see how you were saying like half of your family was more on the scientific side half was on the artistic side and how basically through you you're able to bring together the two sides of your family in a way it's a bit of luck <clears throat> it's a bit of luck because i i have that skill set where you know if i if my genetics maybe were like mixed in a bit a, diff, a different way uh in the womb then maybe I'd, i wouldn't have that so it's sort of i think i'm just quite lucky in a way that i i'm able to do art in the way that i am my paint for example my paintings i like it could be a side business, I've, but I've never painted for sales. I've always painted for myself. Mm-hmm. It, that is just a talent and you, you, you can hone that skill. And maybe when I retire or something at some point in time, I will like actually sell my paintings or I just, I'm enjoying it right now. And I think that that is equally important. In many ways you say you paint for yourself, but you also have brought that into the work that you've done I mean that's how we basically met was collaborating on the paint to wear project through movement for hope (laughs) where we were interviewing people with different neurological issues and then you were abstracting their portrait that you were painting with what it looked like down the microscope I mean it's really powerful when you can bring together two what really appear to be disparate things and find a way that they can interconnect it's more of an evocative invitation to have a feeling towards something rather than to just come at it purely from an intellectual standpoint. And so I I mean, there's so many different questions in my mind, but <laughs> as I was doing my research for the episode and if we look at the path that you've taken and, and I don't necessarily want to delve into anything that you're un- uncomfortable talking about or uncomfortable sharing, but you've basically gone down this path of sort of patient and public involvement and engagement, which at first when I was reading things, I was like, PPIE, what is that? And then I had to <laughs> basically, yeah. Yeah, we just you know, like community engagement now. 
it is a very like specific side of community engagement from the sort of health perspective. You alluded to it before. As we're growing up, we have these sort of formative personal experiences that shape a foundation of who we then become. And it's not set in stone as yeah. it informs our evolution and it can be a catalyst to things that we find ourselves doing, almost like a thread that we can pull through that can take different forms and go in different directions. Myself, you know, my parents were both involved in running a multiple sclerosis clinic together. My stepdad is a neurologist and my mom as a social worker. This meant that I was really fortunate to gain exposure and early understanding of disability, to have gratitude for what, what I've been given, and, and then to do good in my career to further equitable accessibility for all in whatever environment or or path that I took. So I went down a recreation route, but it's really just about realizing that the voices of those who have found themselves in a life circumstance that we refer to as disability are absolutely voices of, you know, resilience and wisdom that should we, we should be listening to. And you had this really great quote on your website, the ability to learn is not fixed. Patient public involvement and engagement are about finding frameworks of useful dialogue between people who speak, think, learn, and live differently. Regardless of, you know, disability, ability, if we wiped it all away and we just get down to the inherent sort of essence of being human, we all learn in different ways. This is the background that, you know, when you and I met, we immediately kind of had this foundation of understanding experience to work together from. So yep. is there experience that you had early on in life? I know you discovered neuroscience and it was kind of, I would, I guess, refer to it as a little bit of a light bulb moment for you. What, I guess, inspired you? Was it a person, an experience or just a wider understanding or wanting to explore? If you could just share a little bit more about that. So I have this, this thing where I, I tend to skim over, in a way, all of the things that could have shifted me down this direction, largely because in some cases, it's not my story to tell. I mean, when, when I went to undergrad, my interest in, well, I was always so, so in high school, I did, I was a part of the Medical and Allied Health Academy. The first light bulb moment I had probably was in high school. I think I was actually 16 at the time. And my brother became quite ill with neurological condition. And mm. it was the first time in my life that that something like that really, really impacted my world. And so I think there was an interest in studying that in a way, largely in a way, you know, trying to just understand it better and see if there is any possibility to of a cure, healing, that or whatever. So I think my my trajectory towards neuroscience was a little bit shaped by that. I did do a few. So in my undergrad experience in the States, you, you usually do like internships and things over the summers between your course schedule. And one of the internships, I, I was looking at this particular neurological condition and it was too close to home. And so I knew that I wanted to stay in neuroscience, but I knew that I didn't want to go that specific route. And so I ended up focused on multiple sclerosis for my PhD and largely even before then uh, in my post-lab experience and things. 
The second light bulb moment was probably in my junior year, my third year in undergrad. And I'll just say that there was a tragic event mm-hmm. that happened that actually is probably the shifted the trajectory towards business for me. So mm-hmm. it was the only summer after that event, the only so I needed just, you know, when you're, you are, I was at a, quite a low place, I would say in life. And each, I just, mm-hmm. I didn't have the capacity like, or the mental energy to do anything science related that summer. And right. so I went into, for all intents and purposes, the pyramid scheme, actually. Nice. <laughs> um, it was a, a company where I was doing direct sales. I was really good at it. And I think I was mm-hmm. very, very good at it because I didn't care about the sale. What healed me that summer, if we want to kind of call it that, was talking to the customers. So, mm-hmm. you know, they say the biggest part of a sale is building rapport. <laughs> I built the hell out of rapport. Like I I went in and I was just, they liked me by the end of the conversation mm-hmm. because I genuinely was interested in their stories and their lives. And in between, I was able to do my sales pitch. But in the end, I really like didn't care if they bought the product or not. I thought the product, I did think the product was good. I'll still say that to this day, but ultimately I was kind of selling it into their lifestyle. And maybe because I ended up really with a fundamental understanding of who they were, I was able to to be really great at, at the sales aspect. And so that was the first delving into business that I had done ever really as a, as a job. And so I carried on with that as kind of like a side hustle through the rest of my time in university. The third light bulb moment was when I, after my master's, I went into a lab as a research assistant. It was less than great. And I found myself at this sort of crossroads of, I was coming to the end of my visa in the UK and I thought they put me off science. <laughs> hmm significantly. What do I want to do with the rest of my time here? And then I had this sort of like breakdown in a way of just trying to understand why I was doing what I was doing. I was coming into the lab at like seven in the morning, staying to like one in the morning, waiting on like Mm. incubation, things that people could have taught me in like 30 minutes or so. And I was teaching myself. And so it was, you know, one of those moments of just like, this is really hard and it's not enjoyable. And what am I going to get out of it? Possibly nothing, you know? And so the moment that I had with myself was like one o'clock in the morning in like the lab, basically. And and I said to myself, I was shouting at myself. <laughs> I love that. I was shouting at myself and I was like, you've never even met anyone with this condition. Like it was a whole mm-hmm. on like, what are you doing sort of mm-hmm. moment. And so I went to YouTube and to pretty much the internet and found some people with the condition, reached out to them it grounded me in a way that I can't really explain because what the condition that I was researching at the time was motor neuron disease or Lou Gehrig's mm-hmm. disease like ALS. Right. If, if audience isn't familiar is the, the condition, the ice bucket challenge campaign was run after when I heard these people talk about their experience and how life was normal up until, you know, whatever, mid thirties. And then they have this sort of fatal condition, the onset of it. And it was the condition that I was looking down the microscope at. It just grounded me in a way. It removed all the politics, all of the crap that happens in research labs at the high level. And it brought me back to the reason why I was there. Beyond that, I felt very strongly that there was a divide between the public and research or researchers in the fact that 
I didn't know their stories and they didn't know that I was up all night in lab trying to get one millimeter closer to what was happening in their condition. Mm -hmm. And what if we could bridge the two, it would give a lot of hope. It would probably initiate some type of forward movement or forward thinking progress. And so that's kind of how Movement for Hope was born. And I thought to myself, what can I do? Like, what tools do I have in my toolbox? that I can use to drive this initiative forward and bridge that gap. I could paint. I knew some some bits about art and I had the science skill set and knowledge. And so I tried to start working out how I was going to smash the two together, which is really <laughs> how Movement for Hope was born. Fourth light bulb moment is when I was finishing up my PhD, face with which path do you go in life, the linear trajectory of academia or the enterprise route, which I was kind of exploring already with Move for Hope very organically. And I enjoyed it so much and I thought that I would be able to make a bigger impact if I kept going with the business side of things. And so I applied to the Royal Academy of Engineering's Enterprise Fellowship and got that for my postdoc. I shifted the department that I was in to an entrepreneurial department at the university, and I stored all my IP under a company name um, that remained dormant for a while and kind of just explored how to essentially put Moving for Hope into software. Yeah, I think those probably are my four light bulb moments. I would say in, in the sense that you're, I think your trajectory in life or what you're doing in life is aligned to your values. And it's so important to kind of think about it that way because you grow and you scale and you change pathways. What happens during that journey is actually as you grow as a person, your values shift and, and that can be circumstantial or it can be full on like you've had an epiphany. What, what I mean by that is after your undergrad experience, you're going to go and choose a, a, a field or industry to be in. You might change that industry later on or you might have kids or you might get married or you might move countries or whatever it is. Your values and structure might change based on that. People who have kids, for example... I don't. I have. <laughs> I don't have kids at the moment. At, at the time of this podcast, I've got frozen eggs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I've got little frozen possibilities. But you might value your time more because you need more time. Or there are things that you, for example, when you're a student, you don't necessarily have to pull in money, right? Depending on like, what your circumstances are, and so mm-hmm. you might not value the for-profit aspect of things as much as just. I got to find a way to do this because it's important to me. And so, yeah, your values start to shift over time, circumstantial to whatever life is presenting you with. The more you can align with that, the more fulfilled you'll you'll feel over time. Whatever you believe in whatever way that you believe, I think, you know, fate, destiny, purpose, universe, you know, there's so many things to describe mm-hmm. energy, really. In whichever way that you believe, you you have a season in time where you're doing something that is aligned to your values and your purpose. That's just the way that I kind of look at life holistically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's easier looking back to sort of see how everything fits together. But when you're in it, yeah. it's so overwhelming and there's so many and, yeah. possibilities, but there's also so many uncertainties. And, you know, you talked about the breakdown and, I think that those breakdowns are necessary in order for us to have breakthroughs because they they get us to ask the important questions. And just like your journey of sort of saying, 
what I'm doing right now, I do not feel connected to. But because of that experience you had in what was seemingly a completely, you know, different experience in terms of being in sales, but that, yeah, you knew that in order for you to ground yourself, it was about the rapport and the relationship. And so you were able to basically pull on this experience that if you looked from close up or when you're in it, you're like, they seem seemingly disconnected, but there was a part of you that knew what your next step needed to be in order for you to continue to do that meaningful work that you were in. Yeah. I mean, I think that that experience was probably the the only reason why I even explored business. The second kind of experience was the only reason I stayed in science. Moving for Hope, I would say, grounded me throughout my PhD because that had waves as well. So all the, the pieces, even to this day, I mean, there's there are so many other things that I can point to where they are puzzle pieces of a bigger story and it all fits together. It really does mm-hmm. in the end. What's really cool too, when I was taking that step back as a witness to what you've been doing with regards to balancing science and art, what I see as curiosity and creativity being maybe not smashed together, but very eloquently interwoven (laughs) from my perspective looking in. I'm sure I felt like smashing at the time. It comes down to innovation. And you talked about the fact that a theme that has kind of run through your life has been this sort of exploration. I put exploration and innovation together and entrepreneurship is absolutely a manifestation of those two things, right? They're the essence of what it means to be an entrepreneur. The medium can be completely different, but the qualities of what we bring through what we do is what matters. Yeah. And so what does it mean to you to innovate? I think to to innovate is, is to not follow the rules, to know where you can disrupt and how you can disrupt in a way that drives positive change or positive transformation. And that can be for everything from from cost to efficiency to to accessibility. Mm-hmm. And you talked about Movement for Hope. Would be really wonderful if you could just explain a little bit more what Movement for Hope did in those seven years. So, oh gosh. <laughs> so <laughs> Movement for Hope, I mean, when I look back on that journey, we did so much with absolutely nothing. And that is to do with people giving their time, volunteering right through to just the fact that we wanted to do it. And so it taught me a lot of resilience, actually, and it taught me just loads. What Movement for Hope accomplished in those seven years, gosh, we had three targets. We had awareness education, adaptive equipment, and research support. Research support-wise, we were able to assist with roughly about $26 million in grant funding or funding support. We were able to start a fellowship program. We would teach students for one to three years, actually how to develop ideas, bring them right through to implementation, how to engage with public who were different from them, how to collaborate with people who were different from them, from researchers to people who were disabled to people who were artists. What that functional collaboration kind of looked like, what co-design looked like, what co-participation looked like. We were able to bring people with disabilities into the classroom to like engineering classrooms and engage with students on 
designs and things that would work for their particular needs in order to develop new prototypes and be disruptive in the med tech space. We supported all the funding that we had, went back into those three things. We supported people with new scooters, new sustainable adaptive equipment, clinics as well, and and developing countries or in areas that were less fortunate, housing, so everything from like bathroom remodeling, so that bathrooms would have the equipment that they need to be livable. It was quite the experience. And then we we ran Mm a flagship event called Rewired that merged performing arts and science to communicate research to a lay audience. And that was probably the biggest event that we were known for. It was such a journey. We went to Africa, we went to China, all over Europe, US, and had cross-disciplinary awareness programs. And even though it's closed now, it still fits into what we do now. From Moving for Hope, I've founded Research Grid and Research Grid streamlines medical research or clinical trials, community engagement from months to minutes using artificial intelligence and process automation. And what that essentially means is that we have two products. One is called R-Grid, and R-Grid is focused on clinical trial management. And R-Grid streamlines administration, so all the documents, data, communication, And then our second product is called Inclusive. I would say Inclusive is the digital version of Movement for Hope. Inclusive is focused on community engagement and streamlines, participant management, data management, and project management using process automation as well as AI. Each of those is upstream or downstream in terms of the medical research process, but they work together. When I look back on Movement for Hope and all of the awareness raising and research support and everything that we did, to understand the bottlenecks there, to address them, to raise awareness generationally as well. So with children, um, young adults and adults, to draw them into research, to understand trials, neurological conditions, it's all fits together in, in the end. And now we're less on the doing side, more on the tech that supports the doing. It's just a different angle of where to be that's still based on like my experiences in research labs and clinical trials and also in community engagement. Mm-hmm. And you can't have one without the other, right? If you hadn't had all of that previous experience and going in at the deep end and following that passion and purpose, yeah. now you're able to translate it in a way that has basically limitless impact because it's something that others can incorporate into what they do. It can be incorporated at so many different levels. We've got roughly about 60,000 different community groups comprised of just under 800 million members across 157 different countries. And when I think about how inaccessible research is and has been for many years, so you have the same types of people participating in research, it affects the efficacy of, of drugs, how effective they are for different types of people because, you know, our genetics kind of all interact with drugs in different ways. And so it might be less effective for a gr- um, an ethnic group of people than for another one that has participated mm-hmm. in trials. And so, but all of that is really, really complex when you think about why are these, are, are these different ethnicities not participating in trials? And that kind of comes down to historical ethics of trials and, you know, the, the history of science is not actually all above board, let's say and right. ethical. So that awareness side of things and engagement side is that there's such a need still for it before you can even think about recruiting somebody. On the inclusive side, our main customers are, med- are still medical research institutions, but we have that infrastructure still for communities to participate and streamline their workflows as well. And so I'm still quite passionate about that. It's 
you know, largely free for that side of the system because it is so important to engage communities. I'm really glad that you brought up the statistics of what inclusive is doing and how the sort of our grid and inclusive fit together. Because if you weren't going to toot your own horn, I was going to. And I'm really glad you shared the story about being in the lab and kind of yelling at yourself and, and grounding yourself in the stories of people. Because I think what happens so much with research is that there's this sort of research fatigue that happens when people are involved in in that process, but there's not this space for cyclical feedback and open table conversation and discussion. And I think that that is the beautiful piece of what you have done and then continue to do in the work that you are doing right now. What you're doing is absolutely integral for the future of a more and I say inclusive in just so many different ways. There's, a, you know, accessibility, transparency, general engagement, co-design, co-participation. There's so much that is entangled in that in the best ways, you know, to optimize what we consider uh, inclusive engagement holistically that is fundamental for clinical trial management and driving clinical trials. And, you know, we're facing a, an era where the FDA is make, has made it mandatory to involve diverse communities. It's a huge part of what we do still. The story behind kind of how it got that way and how inclusive was created is is is, is entirely another story. So it's all been one of those things where all the pieces have fit together in things that I've done in my life that bring me to this point now where I'm on the tech side of it, which you know I could have never guessed that I would be because my background is a lot mostly on the medical research side up until the the postdoc so it's been it's been a journey it really has and i think it's you know moving things from this sort of transmission version of communication to more of conversation and bringing very diverse minds together too right on on both sides of things which means that we can come up with holistic solutions that have a long-term lasting impact so you know, we can look back as we've been doing and we can kind of start to look forward. And it was interesting. I was on your LinkedIn the other day and I saw that you had been in India and it struck me how amazing it is when, you know, your efforts are met with circumstance that just seems to unfold in support of the, the directions you want to go. And you said that you were looking to expand your business in India because you actually have staff both in the UK and India with, with our grid. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, the UK government's inviting you to be a trade delegate yeah. to go and meet all these people and grow this network and to go in person to better understand the context in which you are operating and meet your team in person for the first time in three years, which is wild, but it is the world that we're living in. And I think that people People have better understanding of what it means to be remote from our colleagues and our families, given what we went through with COVID. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this next step for your enterprise. What is exciting to you? Maybe what intimidates you a little bit? I, I heard this great quote this week that said, fear is excitement without the breath. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, okay, that uh, I totally get that. But how do we find comfort in the discomfort of growth? And you alluded to that many many times in this conversation yeah. already, which is beautiful because I think that is honestly the human condition if we're mm. open and willing to it, or even if we're not. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what this next stage looks like for you and, and what it feels like for you. 
So the next stage of uh, Research Grid is U.S. expansion. We, we do have two of our major customers are in the U.S., but we started off in Europe. So expanding to the U.S. more aggressively, let's say, and then <laughs> Asian expansion after that, or it could end up being in parallel. <laughs> that's that's kind of like where we are. We're currently raising our seed plus slash series A round of investment and looking to expand in, into those markets. We have roughly around half Half of the market is in Europe, half the market's in the US, around 18% in Asia. The things that get me the most excited about that are how the product might disrupt the industry. So we've launched our 2.0 products and in February. They're selling quite well right now. It's taking off in ways that I didn't expect or yeah, at the at the at the level that it is, I didn't know that we would reach that at this stage. And I say that as well, like we are quite early stage, but I, I do say that as trajectory also so that that bit is quite exciting the challenges that we face at the moment are just to do with capacity we have thousands and thousands of leads so we just need to scale our actual capacity to be able to meet the demand the second thing that that keeps any founder up at night what that all looks like in the future and the forward Mm -hmm. movement of that and being responsible for Mm -hmm. a lot of lives and salaries that are your staff that part is for me the most daunting and also beautiful experience of this particular journey being able to provide employment and economic viability for people and countries that I'm in but also that comes with its own level of responsibility that never goes away you're always Mm -hmm. switched on and that kind of leads me on to one thing that I really want to nod to here you've been a leader for a long time in many different shapes and forms. Your external accomplishments, which are many, I believe are a recognition and a reflection of inner belief that you've had to have in yourself. And I know that at times it hasn't been easy. It it isn't for all of us. We all struggle at times with sort of imposter syndrome or the inner critic. But with that in mind, separate from logistics and the, as you said, the responsibility to provide the, the structure and foundation financially to your team members, what does leadership mean to you? And what kind of mindset have you had to have in order to do what you've done? The first thing that comes to mind with regard to leadership is accountability. One of the things that I very strongly identify with, with regard to the word leadership is almost for me as a synonym to leadership is accountability. Even if something is fundamentally like not your fault, it's still you take accountability for it when you're a leader. Like, and I don't mm-hmm. think that you can ever separate that from, from leadership. And so there's that aspect of accountability, of discipline, and being true to your values. So living what you what you are preaching, so to speak, that f- for me is, is what leadership embodies. Beautiful. And so before I do our final, final question, if you could just speak a little bit to how our listeners could be open to getting involved or why they should be considering donating to this particular cause. Neurological conditions are one of the most vast things that can go wrong, let's say, in the body. It affects millions and millions of people worldwide. And I just think it's fundamental that we get involved, that we learn about the cause, that we are able to support those who are less fortunate and who really need aspects of support from whether that's adaptive equipment or more 
awareness around it or research around it, it's absolutely fundamental that we are able to kind of come together on on that and support them in the ways that we would require if, if you know, heaven forbid, we face the same kind of challenges. Oftentimes, neurological conditions are not, you're not born with it, so to speak. So it's not something that is like a challenge that you grow with. It's oftentimes a challenge that changes your whole life trajectory. And there's there's lots of different neurological conditions. It's a vast, you know, a vast kind of therapeutic area, but it's one of those things that is can be absolutely devastating when it does happen. And at least, you know, one in seven of us in our lifetime will experience it ourselves or someone that we know. Thank you so much. What do you think is the meaning and purpose of life, the universe and everything? I think the meaning and purpose of life is what resonates with you. We're all connecting to, let's say, energy source, whatever you call that, the universe, God, angels, spirits. There are many different names for energy. We have the ability to influence that energy in various different ways that then reveals what we consider our purpose or our calling or our destiny or our fate. You know, again, many different names for that. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's what we're searching for, what we're influencing is really the essence of authenticity for ourselves. I, I feel like love is tied into that, social acceptance, career success, all of it is tied into this genuine, unified, authentic need to want to be accepted for who we are. That is what kind of ultimately forms or shifts our purpose and ultimately what we put out into the universe in, in in terms of like influencing energy towards that purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was beautiful. Right off the top of my head. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I didn't. <laughs> well, but. Amber, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. And once again, thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing to recreate the world in your own unique and authentic way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. This month's recreation donation is in support of the Brain and Spine Foundation. As you now know from exploring with Amber and I in this episode, neurological conditions affect up to 1 billion people around the world. The Brain and Spine Foundation provides life-changing support for any neurological condition. As well as their free helpline, they have fundraising efforts, peer support groups, and provide free information booklets on neurological conditions, as well as consultations with specialist nurses and professionals for legal and financial support. They also act as a platform for the voices of those with neurological conditions to be heard to affect positive change and raise awareness. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways that you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you. And if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you, or someone you know, has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, 
keep healthy, and keep exploring.